This episode of the Drippin' in Black podcast is dedicated to the life, legacy, and memory of Mac Simon Saunders. Mac, you are loved, appreciated, and missed dearly. In your honor, I would like to read this quote. The hope of the world lies in what one demands, not of others, but of oneself. James Baldwin. Welcome to the Dripping in Black podcast, where we celebrate Black excellence throughout the Black diaspora. Here's your host, David V. Lewis. What's up, good people all across the world? This is the Dripping in Black podcast. I am your host, David V. Lewis. And per usual, we have another fantastic guest who represents Black excellence in the world that we know. Today's guest is Keisha Lee. Keisha Lee, say hello to the world. Hey, world. How y'all doing? <laughs> All right. And so we're going to get into just a casual conversation uh, and highlight kind of what you do special in the world at this moment in your life. But let's talk a little bit about you. Who is Keisha Lee? So who is Keisha Lee? So I'm, I am, uh, I'm a pretty complex and easygoing person. I think I hold that, that paradox. (laughs) I'm both complex and easygoing. Um, I'm originally from Alabama. Um, I grew up in a town called Bessemer, which is right outside of Birmingham. And um, I love a few things. I love reading and writing. I love hiking. Um, And, uh, I've been um, investing a little bit of time in improv, just trying to explore different things that allow me to get to know different parts of me. Uh, I am currently living in D.C. Um, and um, a Southerner living in D.C., even though I haven't lived home in such a long time, I feel that I still very much am like a Southern person in other places, if that makes any sense. And yeah, I you know, I'm a normal kind of normal person. I like to I like to eat. I'm more savory than sweet. Uh, (laughs) And yeah, I'm really happy to be here. So improv, you said investigating improv. Can you go into a little more detail about that? (laughs) So I live in DC. There's this group called the Washington Improv Theater. I think it's called WIT is the uh the acronym and I, I I think I achieved there's five levels to go through improv I think I made it up to level four COVID hit work and all these different things but I have to say this I think improv is life it's one of those things that you kind of get you see and you're like man that's so corny it looks really weird you kind of think of Wayne Brady you know whatever your feelings are about him but I joined on a whim because they did a um they held a session um like um a two hour like free session for anybody to join. And I was like, this is fun. So I um, um, have been just um, getting some kicks out of that. I actually really miss it. You know, if you sit home and you're like, what are the things that you really miss now that we can't yeah. be out in the world? Improv is one of them for yeah. me. Yeah. Oh man. So we're looking forward to having you back on when that career blows up. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm actually kind of funny. Capacity. I'm actually pretty good. I was surprised. I'm actually pretty good. It's interesting because, you know, you have to work with so many different personalities and people. So it's like kind of interesting to see how your energy connects with like a random stranger. Right. Yeah. Um, and depending on what type of prompt is thrown at you. 
So yeah. yeah. Well, dripping in black will fly out to DC uh, once COVID is over to come check you out <laughs> at your next improv. Yeah. Right. I would love so that. let's talk a little bit about um how dripping in black connected with you. All right. How oh, you want we, me to tell How did we come to know you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a really good friend um, from childhood, um, Tanjula Eaton. And she's like this dynamic, you know, free-spirited, wherever she goes, the sunshine follows type of friend. And I'm like the curmudgeon, you know, if that's, if that's the, <laughs> is that the word? I'm less romantic, right? I'm like the more rational friend. And okay. uh, she had a birthday and... Um, Tanjali is the friend where I just kind of, you know, kind of, you know, leave room open for possibility and wonder because she was like, yeah, I'm having this birthday party. I was like, okay, well, you know, uh, you know, I'll be there. And then the next thing I know, I'm like facilitating, hosting, <laughs> transitioning things, doing tech in the background, working with the DJ. I think y'all, you know, most people have this one friend that kind of gets you into good trouble. Like shout out to John Lewis, but the, the friend that gets you into good trouble, you kind of show up, you don't know what's going to be happening, but it's always an adventure. So I was there and, um, you know, hosting and then David has a takeover spirit um, world. And he was like chiming in on my hosting abilities. I was like, hey, be gentle. I did not know I was going to be working tonight. I thought I was going to be here to like participate. And um, and so we met during that um, during that exchange for my friend's birthday. Yeah. yeah. And you did a fantastic job in all of your various roles. And uh, I think we saw a little of your improv, improvisational skills because you just on the spot, just figured it all out. And uh, great job, great job, great job. Yeah. Shout out to Tanjula Eaton. Um, All right, so let's get into, you have these uh, nice titles. (laughs) You know, when I I grew up, I want to have these nice titles. You know, when people ask me what I do, I say I'm a teacher. I mean, there's nothing sexy about that. (laughs) But educational consultant and nonprofit executive, Mm-mm. right? Let's talk about that. What what, is, what, are, what are those roles? So interesting. So first of all, I used to teach. I taught um, pre-K through eighth grade. Uh, and, and teaching is as sexy as you want it to be in terms of your... <laughs> In terms of your title. And then also, I feel like you, you know, I think teachers can be more creative with what them, what they call themselves. Like, you know, it's not like you're teaching. It's that you are, you know, the curator of future genius. That's like what <laughs> okay. a teacher is. That's actually uh, your title. I'm, like I'm printing out my cards today. <laughs> print it out. And you don't even have to pay me for that one. So um, I, <laughs> I work as a, as a, uh, education consultant. So that's kind of, you know, my primary, um, like, you know, how do I bring in income? I work as an education consultant. And what that means is I really help um, institutions solve problems, or I apply my technical expertise to a particular project or problem that they have. And um, that means I work with a variety of different clients. I'm very fortunate that in my um, work as an education consultant, I have worked on projects for local government, for the U.S. government, for national government, and then also for um, the internet for international clients because I also consult at the World Bank, and so that has allowed me um, 
if you can imagine being a teacher and then having an opportunity to work at those different levels where education is facilitated, right? Because education is primary a public good um, mm-hmm. at the local, national, and international levels. It's given me a bit of a window into um, how we solve problems, how we think about education, and um, what may be possible um, if we sometimes didn't get in, in our way of just like humans trying to do things and you know build bu- bureaucracies um, that try to manage creativity. So that's one part of what I do. And then um, I also have been um, I've worked in uh, so I've, I've worked in and out of education. I would say that my core expertise is in early childhood education. And um, within early childhood education, I primarily focus on literacy and reading and early early grade reading. Um, and um, my my work though has span across working in nonprofits, working in government entities. Um, I was um, until last year I was the executive director at the Hurston Wright Foundation, uh, which is a thirty year old um, nonprofit focused on. Uh, essentially um, um, discovering, mentoring, and honoring Black writers. And so there's a little bit of a through line in almost everything that I do. Um, And that through line is going to be books, literacy, literature. And um, I kind of feel like that all falls under education, um, or in some cases with literature, the humanities. Yeah. 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 Well, sounds like really powerful work, right? Um, I can't think of anything more powerful than literacy at an early age. Yeah. Yeah. So where did this passion for literacy begin for you? So y'all, I'll be honest. I was totally one of those people who went to college. Tanjula and I, the friend that we just were talking about, we went to um, um, undergrad together, Dillard University in New Orleans. Um, And Dillard is- HBCU. Yes, at HBCU. And um, I studied at Dillard, I studied international business and Japanese studies. And at the time, Dillard was the only institution that had a Japanese studies language program. And really at that time, my intent was to go into like international trade. Um, At the time in Alabama, Mercedes had opened up their plant and it had been open for a couple of years. And because of that, we had gotten a lot of traction from auto uh, manufacturers, so Toyota, Honda, I mean, I think Hyundai, there, across the state of Alabama, there were a number of things happening um, in the auto industry. And I've always kind of had an affinity for like technology. Um, actually, to be honest with you, my first major at Dillard was computer science. Um, okay. And then uh-huh. I, switched, I switched over to, uh, to international business and Japanese studies. So, you know, I was really one of those black kids growing up in Birmingham, like in the vestiges of the civil rights movement, Um, and, you know, in retrospect, I don't, um, I think my parents and family were pretty open to like, go to school, do whatever you want to do. But I think the greater message I got in society was like, you go to school to make money, (laughs) you know, and to be able to economically, like, you know, put yourself in a space where you can be um, solid and take care of yourself. And so really that was what my interest was. I was thinking like, okay, what are some of the things I like to do? I like Nintendo. I like video games. Ooh, like, (laughs) oh, that all kind of, that stuff comes from Japan. Like, oh, how does that create, how is that created? Oh, computer science. I'm really good at math, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I was the top student in my high school for, for math. 
And so it's kind of one of those things that like does a little bit of a spiral, right? You're not quite sure. You think you're sure why you're doing it, but you're not really sure why you're doing it. And so um, at my during my time at Dillard, I studied abroad. Um, I got a scholarship to study at the University of London, um, the School of Oriental and African Studies. And there were many great things about that um, experience for me, but one of them was really meeting the other college students who were slightly mm -hmm. older than me. And all of them had taken a gap year, um, which is something very, you know, um, I think it's becoming more normal in America, but very more, typical. And more in vogue for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, more typical in Europe at the time, which is like, you know, sadly, I have to say like almost 20 years ago. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I, ha I came back because it was my first time out of the country, um, except for like visiting the Caribbean or things like that, right, on a, on a cruise. Uh, but it was my first time really living uh, abroad. And I just, it just really opened my world up to so many things. So I came back to school my senior year, to Dillard my senior year, completely confused. I was like, I don't know what I want to do. I think I want to oh, do wow. this. I'm not sure. Because it kind of rocked my world a little bit. And I got to see um, uh, people uh, in different environments. I also got to experience myself in a different environment, right? It's, it's I think yeah. there's something really valuable to say about putting yourself in in places where you don't know anyone, you don't have family or friends feeding into you, um, that um, whether we know it or not, um, we have conscious and unconscious ways of being, you know, around people that we love and who know us. But that put me in a space where I could really kind of truly be free and explore and see who I was and like really kind of work out my own, you know, becoming, so to speak. So, um, so I kind of, you know, jostled around a little bit and I ended up, I did end up working for Mazda for a really short period of time. And then I realized I don't care whether or not people buy Mazda cars. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was really, but I had a great experience. I had some really um, dynamic women leaders that, that um, were completely in my corner at Mazda. Um, but I ended up deciding that I was going to work in international education because I still had that like experience from studying abroad in my head. Like, oh, this is so okay. cool. We need more black and brown kids to like study abroad and live abroad. Yeah. And so I would say my first you know, full real job was working for a nonprofit in Seattle called One World Now, mm -hmm. where we um, we provided um, after-school language classes in Arabic and Chinese at the time, Mandarin Chinese at the time, um, mm -hmm. and modern standard Arabic at the time. And then we took the students each summer to um, Morocco and China, um, depending on what, which language they were studying. So my, I kind of went through this whole thing, like, oh, I'm studying international business, Japanese, I'm gonna get a great job and, you know, and work in international trade or something cool um, in Alabama and have these language skills. And then I studied abroad and I was like, eh, I don't really think that's it for me. Okay. And so that kind of kicked my, my, um, you know, my career off into the space of education. And then I found my way to, to literacy as like, what are the, what's the thing that I really love and care about? Uh, what is the thing that has the ability to liberate us um, the most? And what is one of the things that we can actually solve, right? Yeah. Um, and I think literacy is one of them. When I was teaching here in DC, I mean, I had so many students, I, I'll take the seventh or eighth graders, for example, who were barely reading on a first or second grade level. 
And um, it's kind of remarkable because if you speak with them, they have the presence of being um, in yes. terms of being able to articulate and tell their stories. But the actual functional skill of being able to read was very, um, was very challenging. Um, and, um, so my, uh, I, I kind of made my way to reading, um, in literacy, uh, once I broke through and knew that I wanted to be in a space of education. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's, that's really a very comprehensive explanation of how you got to literacy. <laughs> <laughs> like, I did not expect that long-winded story. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. And, uh, you know, my uh, behind-the-scenes partner, S-squared, if we had a ding for everything that that uh, that resonated with him, we would have these dings going off. Um, you know, you talked oh, about cool. computer science and then shifting, and you talked about being excellent at math and then shifting, and then finding yeah. your way to literacy and education. Uh, I could just hear ding, ding, ding going off uh, for him. Um, but uh, fantastic. I think you did a, a great job answering that question for me. All right. So I, I'm curious looking about like a, looking like a teacher. It's like, make sure you affirm after the child has, to, <laughs> you know, given their all. <laughs> and the clarity as well. You know, we want clarity for our audience. So I think you, you provided that. Um, the World Bank Group. Yeah. What What is it? Uh, so the World Bank Group is an institution that was founded after um, World War II in order to help inst- uh, help countries that were devastated get back on their feet. Um, and the World Bank Group's mission is to essentially el- eliminate poverty. Um, and there are a number of pathways by which the bank works to eliminate poverty. Um, I happen to consult on projects within the education group, uh, but there's health there's social protection, and there are also very um, functional things that are important for governments to run. So governance and infrastructure and things that are necessary so that countries can be stable and offer the important social services such as health and education and protection to their citizens. Yeah, so that to me, that was one of the things that jumped off your page. And then I went to look for it and I saw all that they're doing. And so I was curious about, um, you know, what the group, uh, what World Bank Group does, but then how someone, someone like you got started there. You know, what took you to that particular organization? Yeah, very interesting. So, you know, the one thing I would like to tell people about my trajectory is um, don't be afraid to bet on yourself because <laughs> I think I've had a number of twists and turns. Okay. And uh, I had quit a job where I was working um for um, in um, leading um, global strategy for a children's book company, for lack of a better um, word. And I was just so unhappy. Um, And there were a number of challenges there. Um, And from my perspective and experience, other people might have different perspectives and experience. It was one of those things of coming into a space as a brown and black person. um, And that was run by non-black people, uh, mostly an entire C-suite that was white. And it was a very kind of peculiar uh, space to be in. Um, And there was a a bit of toxicity there, but I quickly got there and kind of hit into my, you know, your spidey senses hit in as a person of color. Um, And you realize that um, there's so many white liberals who are quote unquote uh, on the front and face of things, um, aiming to do good work, um, but have very, very, very toxic and traumatic ways of being 
um, yeah. and leading these organizations that are primarily oriented for black and brown children in yeah, this country and absolutely. all around the world. Um, and so it was a really difficult situation for me because, you know, it's like a, uh, it's another paradox. It's like, oh, this is the work I really, really want to do, but this is not the environment for me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I am not here um, to have these battles consistently um, uh, consistently with um, with white people. And then knowing too, that if, you know, uh, it became public, have a very strong sense um, that they would push the responsibility on, of that issue onto me as one of the few black people in, in, the, um, <laughs> in the organization. So a really good example of this is that there was one colleague, one VP, we were kind of working out to send some books to Haiti. Um, and um, wanted to send a number of books with like white princesses to the space. And I was like, this doesn't make any sense. We should go back to the funder and just say, this isn't, this isn't going to work with us. We may send less books, but at least we send the books that are um, useful, culturally responsive, relevant in terms of language to the children. And when I tell you it was one of the most toxic experiences watching that white woman not be able to have a professional conversation about it. Um, wow. And then also just a, a very kind of disgusting display of like power um, mm. and what people do in the background so that the organization looks good, but isn't really necessarily helping to support black and brown children. Yeah. Um, so I got out of there and then I started to think about what do I wanna do? And I was like, you know, let me give nine to five a break. <laughs> and I was like, I don't think I'm meant for <laughs> nine to five. I started consulting, really focused in on the things that were important to me. And honestly, I just submitted a proposal to the bank. I saw um, a, uh, the team that I joined, I saw a um, posting on one of the social enterprise like listservs um, here in DC. And I was like, this is interesting. And the bank has have these terms of references or job postings that are sometimes very cumbersome to work through. And it sat in my inbox for two weeks because I was like, I can't do this. I don't know. It sounds interesting, but they're probably wow. never going to hire me. You know, I had all these kind of, you know, conversations in my head. And then one weekend I got up and said, you know what, I'm going to apply to this. I, I worked through the terms of reference, which was a couple of pages long, and I listed out everything that they were looking for. And I was like, I've done all of these things. Um, mm -hmm. I can completely do this. And it was a little gray area. I qu couldn't quite grasp exactly what the work was. And um, I put together a little proposal and said, hey, if you hire me for this role, this is how I would. Um, and that initial contract was only for 30 days. Um, and here I am five years, five, six years later, actually, off of one contract that was only 30 days old. Um, I put together um, a little plan and say, this is how I would approach this over the next three months, because it was 30 days over three months in terms of finishing this, this, this contract. And I got a call the next day. I interviewed. It actually happened to be focused on books. It hadn't, I had no idea. Wow. Um, it happened. We focused on books and there were some people engaged from like the international books um, side that I had um, worked with previously um, in my previous um, position. And so that was the entryway. And so in my, you know, uncertainty, um, um, I think there was definitely um, a, a lot of God in that kind of guiding me towards, towards it. There's no way I would have known that that posting yeah. was going to be focused on books. And even I would know the people, which I think helped me get the position because I, I already knew some of the people involved on the on this international side. 
So I started that project, which was um, a lot of fun, working with a really um, great group of people um, at the bank. And since then, as a consultant, um, I pretty much have worked on a number of different types of projects within the education unit, uh, mostly um, books, books related, uh, literacy related, and now early childhood education. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, my mind, uh, I love doing this podcast because I get the guest on and it takes my mind to all of these places. And I'm always thinking yeah. about ways to inspire uh, younger people. And so, you know, you have this background in education uh, mm-hmm. and we didn't talk about this pre-show, but what, what was do you, what, what was your degree in actually? Oh, my degree, my undergraduate degree is in international business and Japanese studies. Okay. And my um, I'm from Dillard University. And then I did graduate school at Duke. I attended the Sanford School of Public Policy and I have a, a master's degree in public policy with a concentration in um, social policy or, or education policy. So how, how does that, um, you know, educational background play into, right? Because I'm hearing the improvisation in your spirit, right? I'm tired <laughs> of this. Let me tie this nine to five. Let me try something different. Yeah. Where does that um, education that you've had intertwine with that improvisation, if you will? Oh, really interesting. Um, So shout out to the HBCU and shout out to Dillard in particular, um, because Dillard was a space that really, I think, helped me cultivate um, this idea that, listen, there's so many things you can do. Um, and it's um, and it's possible for you to do it, and we're going to support you, and it's going to be okay for you to make mistakes in this space. Mm-hmm. Um, that's A. And then B, I have to just say it because I've gone to a number of different institutions um, for like fellowships and um, grad school, predominantly white institutions after Dillard. And there is something to say about being able to study in a space where your your weight, your being, your skin color, your person is not under assault. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I had some trying times at Duke, right? Um, there's uh, my program was really great. I had a few really great teachers and mentors there, but the experience globally um, def- definitely represents, I think, in some ways, the experience that Black people have been in, in the world, right? There's yeah. um, racism. There are a number of complicated things um, that come up from attending a PWI. Um, but for Dillard, I think I, I felt emboldened and I felt confident. Um, and it was also very, you know, a beautiful experience to be around other um, Black teachers, Black professors, Black and Brown professors um, yeah. from various parts of the world. And also the white professors, to be honest with you, because there's a, you know, there were a handful of white professors there. Um, and I think it takes a particular type of consciousness um, to uh-huh. be at the HBU and do it well, because if you're, you know, if they if they're whack, they're not going to last very long. The white professors aren't right. Yeah. Um, we're going to see straight through it, and you you have to have a certain way of being um, as a non person of color to be at HBCU. So definitely, I have to say, Dillard was um, my training ground, like a very very formidable, strong training ground where I felt safe and covered and completely supported. So, um, what are Did I question <laughs> i'm not sure what the question was wait what? so y'all from, <laughs> i'm from the south so i think, i, I, <laughs> I, I, might I feel go like it was answered I, I really feel okay. like it was answered my question was asking about how did you 
you know, basically use your education to land your position, even though there's no linear path to that position, right? Yes. Right. Yes. And so I, my question was kind of, you know, we, we talk about education and you've mentioned earlier, a lot of times it's this, um, you know, there's two ways to look at going to higher education. One is like for the experience and the broadening of your understanding, the, the education part of it. But then really in, in, in common times, education is the pathway to your career, which, you know, that's a whole nother conversation for another day. All right. Yeah. And so in your experience, when I'm listening to you, I don't see that direct line from what you went to school for, but I'm sure that is um, undergirding a lot of the work that you're doing, if you will. So I was trying to get that out. So I gotcha. <laughs> um, so one thing I could add to that is just to say, um, it's it. <laughs> so I don't have that linear path, that's for sure. But I would say that the experiences and the exposure have helped me cultivate a particular attitude towards myself and my career that I think has opened doors for me. So back in the day, just the fact that I had studied and lived abroad yeah. opened up opportunities because employers were, were thinking like, you don't maybe not have this particular skill, but we can train you on it. What we're mostly looking for is someone who has the cultural competence, the patience, the broad global perspective to lead and participate in this type of professional experience, right? So I've had some experiences that were like that. And then um, I've also had a number of people advocating for me along the way um, that have like, you know, nudged me in certain ways or open doors or say, you should have a conversation with this person. Um, and um, that has been a great um, through line as well through my career. And then I hate to say it, but this is really, I think, in especially because I live in DC, DC is a very white collar town. Um, mm -hmm. And most of the jobs, I think it's, uh, there's there's many jobs that require a higher education, really just for you to be able to make a living wage, unless you're fortunate enough to get one of the appointments or positions within the DC government. Um, and so one of the things that I noticed here, and I've been here on and off for about a decade, is that your network is mostly associated with your school. Um, and so as broad as your school network is, so if you go to one of these big tier institutions like a Michigan or a Duke or the Ivy Leagues, yeah, <laughs> the other blue, uh, or the Ivy Leagues, it creates um, it creates this kind of vacuum. So I'll go into spaces and see that like, oh, everybody here is from Harvard. <laughs> okay. I don't know if that's a coincidence. It doesn't kind of seem like, you know, um, there's obviously very smart and brilliant people able to do this work that are not at that institution or from that institution. But um, it's definitely that age old adage that folks are hiring from their spaces. Now, I would have to say also as a Black person who's gone to Duke, um, there have been some benefits for me, for example, the um, the bank was not one of them. I did not have a connection, for example. And now that I've gotten into the bank, I'm actually really surprised I got in <laughs> because <laughs> I applied like a normal person. I just applied yeah. like a normal person. And um, but now that I'm there, I understand there's lots of different ways of getting into right and getting to spaces and getting exposure and also just having the background knowledge to know how that system works. Um, is oftentimes a big impediment for 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 us. 
essentially I'm saying that's a, it's, it can be a very complicated answer. Um, and, you know, I also have friends who have graduated from, for example, University of Phoenix. They're brilliant. They're smart. They're scrappy. They've been able to like navigate amazing correct, uh, professional careers. Yeah. And I would say, you know, take the time to invest in those things that are important to you. Try to do it debt free, um, <laughs> to be honest yeah. with you, uh, and put more faith in your own self. Um, and to and your um, your ability to ask questions and push push forward and, and like put, push the envelope a little bit, um, but you know it is true. You know there's definitely institutions and places you put yourself into that get you more access to these traditional capitalist ways of being able to create wealth. Yeah, 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 yeah. and I I think it's an interesting part of your story in that you have this educational background, but. Um, it's almost an entrepreneurial spirit that guides what you do from a professional standpoint. And so it gives you that, you know, that balance of using what that education has provided you and then keeping your mind open to the possibilities of what you could actually do with that education. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's kind of what I was getting at. Um, I want to touch on a few things, you know, before we go too long. <laughs> so, uh, in this role, what do you? What are some things that you enjoy doing the most? What's What's the gratitude that you get from um, an educational consultant position? Um, so personally, and just kind of practically, flexibility. I make my own schedule. Um, I create my own vacations. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't have to. Um, I don't live within that kind of traditional box of like, oh, I can't do this because, you know, I don't have enough vacation days or what have you. Um, So those are some of the practical things, that type of flexibility. Um, And also just being able to choose um, what and who I want to work with. Uh, I've been doing it for a little while now where I can, I'm able to now make choices. In the beginning, when you're like consulting and working for yourself, you're like taking everything because you don't know when the money is going to come. It's like, yes, 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 yes. Now I think I'm getting to a space where I can make choices and that feels very good. Um, And to really think about what's aligned with me and my, uh, my own criteria for saying yes and for, and for saying no. Um, on the other hand, I think I have learned and gained so much. So for example, for the bank, um, I recently, well, not recently, because we haven't been traveling, but the last time I was on a plane, I actually was in Pakistan when the country was um, shutting down last year. So I was finishing a training in Lahore, in Lahore, Pakistan, and um I had such a wonderful experience. And if you can imagine being in a space where there aren't a lot of Black people, uh, definitely American Black women, um, although there is a community that is that is descended from um, African people in, in Pakistan. But if you can imagine someone like me from Alabama, a Black woman, I probably age a little bit down <laughs> if I ask myself. So I look pretty young. Going into a space um, to facilitate and to lead a training, there's probably a lot of like assumptions and things in the air. Um, and then likewise for me, I'm doing a lot of work to pre-work to just learn and understand things that I may not, um, particularly know or understand about the cultural aspect, but I'm very clear about the education work or the facilitation work that I'm there to do. So one of the beautiful things about the bank is just the opportunity for me to, to, um, 
go to spaces to learn from community members and governments around the world who are designing and creating um, all these aspects of their early childhood education system um, and to be a support in that way. So that's A, it's, like a, it's a lot of knowledge exchange and I feel very grateful for that. Um, the, the lens that I get to see um, from a very, you know, um, global perspective in terms of what does it really take for a government to uh, retool or refine or expand their, their education uh, subsector. And then on the other hand, it's also just the people experiences. Um, you know, the, the really short of the story is that I've lived and traveled so many places that I feel, I think my the one through line for me is that one, um, that every there uh, most people in the world are good. And, yeah. and that's, that's pretty much it. I had such a great time yeah. training and facilitating in Pakistan. I learned quite a bit from my, um, uh, for my colleagues who were there to participate in the training. And um, it's it's an interesting story if you kind of think about that we're as Black people not very far away from even just the civil rights movement, right? We're just 50, yeah. 60 years away from that. Um, yes. And it, in terms of like what we might even think of freedom, do we even have freedom? I don't know, but we're we're still living in generations where people have very active memories of being non-human as Black people um, yeah. in America. So yeah. that at this stage where I am, that I could be traveling and my great-grandmother who never got on a plane in her life, um, I think it tells a lot about the resilience of my family and the women in my family um, and um, what they've instilled in me such that they may have had limitations, but those limitations yeah. um, were not limitations that had to extend you know, to me in my experience. Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. Um, so I want to talk about also just kind of, uh, I think, shifting a little bit. Like you said, that through line is literacy. So I've seen something in your bio about uh, hashtag Ward 8 Reads. Let's yeah. talk about that. Yeah. So I'm very fortunate to um, have my adopted community in D.C. be Southeast D.C., um, and um, the part of Southeast that I live in is Ward 8, which is like a, you know, a county or, a, I don't know, a parish or, you know, a, a segment of the community, um, depending on how you call it in different states. And in Ward 8, it's, you know, it's pretty much about 98, 90% Black um, in this space. And um, I started this as a, um, it came really as an offshoot of me teaching in D.C., um, and really seeing and understanding that a lot of my students were highly capable, um, very smart and um, very driven in a number of different ways in terms of communication. Like the one thing I love about people, Black people and us in general is just how we communicate, how we create words and new languages. <laughs> like Indeed. this is our thing. Like literacy is our thing, right? <laughs> like literacy, literature, this is what we do well. Look at Twitter, look at, you know, the Instagram, <laughs> YouTube. We everyone basically uh, slowly follows and adapts the languages that we have created, right? Yeah. The memes, like the meme culture and the way that Black people have completely taken over to create a yeah. language via memes. Hip-hop. So it's like hip-hop. Okay, so many things. This yeah. makes me so excited. Um, but then there are fundamental things in terms of like actually being able to read text 
were, I had many students who were, um, and children as well, who were really struggling to read on grade level. So if you think about an eighth grader who's not even quite on the second or third grade level, um, and that was my experience um, more often than not. Um, when yeah. at the time that I was teaching in DC public schools. And so as I quit that job, I was telling y'all about. <laughs> and um, um, at that time, one of my good friends had also passed away. And Mac was a, uh, he was a librarian with DC public schools. And he mm-hmm. was also finishing his PhD at Howard in literature in African-American wow. lit. So Interestingly enough, in my grief, um, I started Ward 8 Reads as a way to really celebrate him and just to really think about what does it look like to have um, books that feature young Black boys, culturally responsive, and with topics that are relevant to them. And I, um, at the time, I had a really hot, like, Rihanna haircut with my shaved sides (laughs) and everything. So I went up to MLK. I I don't live far from Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, so (laughs) that's exactly where I live. So I went to my, uh, I went to one of the barbershops because I got a terrible undercut. And I sat in the chair, and eventually I ended up in the owner's chair several, several months later. And Kevin mm. asked me, like, what do you do? And I was like, oh, I work in books, and, like, this is my thing. He was like, I always thought about getting some books and putting it here. And I came back, like, two weeks later with 400 books. Wow. And I think he thought I was lying because he was like, oh, you're serious. <laughs> so we ended up putting um, – I know there's a, ah. a, some initiatives here with, like, barbershop books and stuff. I'm pretty sure we were first, though. Maybe we weren't first, but we had been doing it before the barbershop books thing taken off. We had, we were probably in the barbershop a year or two before that had taken off. So it really started with Kevin. Um, he was our first incubator. The barbershop was our first incubator. And so I went on a vacation. I quit that job. I went on a vacation after I quit the job. Like, who does that? <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and when I came back, all the books were gone. And he, I was like, Kev, what happened to the books? And he was like, Keisha, the, the kids kept asking, could they keep them? And I didn't have the heart to tell them no. Wow. And so that's where Ward 8 Reads came, came in. Yeah. We essentially have evolved into, um, it's a community um campaign that's really focused on helping families in Ward 8, we're very hyper-local, develop in-home libraries of culturally responsive books. Yeah, so um, it's it's absolutely imperative that you join Black Lit Matters. Uh, (laughs) We're we're, we're speaking the same language. Uh, The founders are doing some of the same things, and uh, there's probably a logical connection there as well. So, you know, I'm on camera. I love that putting you uh, on the spot to get into on the black spot. matters. <laughs> <laughs> I would uh, love group, that. Yeah. So it's a couple of questions that I like to ask guests toward the end. Uh, first question is, um, if you had a wish and that wish was granted uh, to take you to the next level of what you're doing, what would that wish be? Ooh, <laughs> wow. I like this. I like dreaming. Uh, so if I had a wish to take me to the next level, um, that wish would be to, um, I have some ideas and dreams about shifting Ward 8 reads, connecting my experience working globally, uh, because I've also seen we have the same issue for Black and Brown kids around the world. Um, there is yeah. limited access to books and resources. 
So my wish would really be to eliminate the funding issue um, and to really think about what does it look like to have a world where all children have access to um, culturally responsive books and an in-home library. So we have research that shows that if kids have at least 20 books in the home, they're more likely to read three or more grade levels beyond their current grade level. Um, and I have, a, I have a really strong sense that like the literacy issues we see in urban Black America, like they think our Detroit's, our Chicago's, our Atlanta's, um, our Boston's, like areas where they're very concentrated Black and Brown segregated yeah. schools as well, the DC's. Um, I have a really strong feeling that if more of our kids had access to books and resources that actually talked like them, that spoke yeah. to their lived experience, um, yeah. that we wouldn't be seeing some of the literature issue, the literacy issues we see. So a big wish I, I have would really be to um, think about, and we have a model that we've piloted here in Southeast DC, where we were able to help families develop an in-home library for only $150. Um, that includes 20 books and a bookshelf and a bookcase and um, support from what we call family literacy ambassadors. So those are family members and parents here in the community who do activities and work together and crowdsource ideas around how do we build those culturally rich and responsive liter literacy spaces that speak to, speak to our experiences as Black people and Black children and Black parents. So I would love to see that really fully funded out. Um, I've calculated that it will take about $3 million for us to outfit entire Ward 8. Um, there's about 30,000 families here in Ward 8 with, um, with a home library. That would be my like number one wish. Bam, we have a hyper-local community example of what it might look like for every child to have access to a home library, but not just any home library. It's books that are actually feature black and brown protagonists, right? Yeah. We got Jason Reynolds, right? We got Jacqueline Woodson. We got Vashti in terms of black illustrators. So, um, and then what I would like to do is have proof of case for this uh, and then create a model out by which other communities can, um, can replicate um, as an open source, you know, common license tool. Okay. It's just a little small thing you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> and then the world. <laughs> yeah. A little, little small, little wish there. Okay. That's easy. That, three, yeah. three million, oh. nothing, right? That's so easy. Like someone can listen to this and be like, I have 3 million just generating from interest. They could call me yeah. up and we can have a plan and we can have this working in the next three months. Yeah. And then, you know, I'll, and Sean would say, I don't know if easy is always the, the goal, right? It's, uh, it's, it's necessary and doable, you know, for Thank sure. You. I love that. Yeah, I love yeah. it. Yeah. So I think uh, the next question, uh, you can let me know if it sounds like the same question, but I think it's a little bit different. Okay. Um, so you're an educational consultant, uh, nonprofit yep. exec. What's yep. next for you? Um, what's next for me? Um, you know, I'm actually in the middle of thinking about that. So I, um, I, um, I resigned from the ED position at Hurston Wright um, last June. 
And when I took on that position, my idea, I had a really interesting frame in terms of what my idea was in terms of leveraging that work focused on discovering, mentoring, and honoring Black writers really at the adult level and really thinking about how that meshed with the work that I'm doing uh, for pre-K through 12th grade, right? I'm primarily working on literacy uh, on the younger levels because we need the literacy on the younger levels Absolutely. for our kids to be engaged and interested in creating books so that they can win a Hurston Wright Award. Yeah. And um, there are many things that happened there, but it was not a good fit for me. Um, and I'm one of those people that's gonna take a moment to pause and to say, this is my North Star. Um, and I'm, do I feel like I'm doing the best that I can under these conditions with the people who are here? Uh, and I had to take a bow out. But if you want to bring me back on, I'm happy to have a conversation about our historical Black organizations. Indeed. <laughs> and oh, yeah. Like, Absolutely. Let's, let's talk about the CBC and um, a number of the historical Black organizations and really think about what might it take for us to re-envision them in the 21st century? What does that mean for our elders to shift their thinking um, yeah. and to also um, think about working more collaboratively with our generation? Anyway, I have thoughts about it. But that was a little bit of a rock to my spirit because I was so excited about that role and really in all for all intents and purposes had intended on being there for quite a while because I had some ideas around what, what does it look like to shift this organization that's doing such beautiful work um, to a solid... Um, um, a strong platform in terms of its systems and all of those things so that it's operating like a machine and then we can work on the, the fun stuff. Um, so I'm working with an executive coach right now. I've been working with her for about two years. I'm really mapping out what my next um, couple of years look like. And um, I think we're probably going to see for me, <laughs> you know how people say that, I think we're probably going to see for me. I think we're going to probably see for me a little bit more boldness as it relates to um, the community work that I'm doing. Um, uh, I am reading, um, I'm a follower of Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown, which is a book that really is oriented. The, the primary thesis is that we all have gifts and talents that feed into how we, um, uh, we show up in the world. And what might it look like if we think about ourselves as, as this collective body um, in oh, terms man. of doing it's another ding going off yeah <laughs> our community work so I'm thinking a lot about that for myself um, deconstructing all of the toxic ways that I've learned to be and to work and be in community that's an ongoing practice for me and I think we're probably going to see more boldness more testing of ideas more um, focus and orientation around like how do I do work in community um, and what does that look like for me? And probably something exciting on the literary and literacy front um, for the communities that have nurtured me. So like Southeast DC, Alabama. Yeah, oh man, that's, that's a great response. A uh, lot, lot to be excited about for what's up next for you in the future. And we look forward to following your story and definitely having you back on several times. Um, Sean calls that the ligature effect. Where you the have ligature. people that have okay. ligature effect. Yep. Yep. Um, what else did I, I want? I got two more things. So okay. are you, are you fluent in, in Japanese? 
えっと、えっと、私の日本語は本当に悪くなってきました。えー、5年前にわ悪くなってきました。My Japanese is not very good right now.、Well, no. Sounds good to me. So, I, can, I can get around. What did you just I totally, say there? Like, even messed up that whole sentence. But I can, like, I can get around. I can function a little bit. But it's not as good as it could be. No. So can you say dripping in black in Japanese? Ooh. The Dripping in Black podcast in general. On the spot.、Mm. I would totally butcher that. So I'm going to say <laughs> a no to the true Japanese speakers. But this is what I think it would, could possibly be. So because it's an English phrase, the English phrases are written in, in a version of Japanese called katakana. And it's just basically the way that it would sound would be almost the way we would say it in, in English. Okay. So, yeah, so like maybe dripping goo in black goo. Okay. No podcasts.、Okay. <laughs> It would be something、okay. like that, I think. Yeah. All right. That sounds,、yeah. that sounds good enough.、Yeah. I think we can use that to promote. <laughs> okay. And the final, <laughs> most important question of the podcast is Have you ever been on the cover of a magazine? Oh, interesting. No, I have not been on the cover of a magazine. However, is that what you all ask everybody? That's an interesting question.、Um, I have not been on the cover of a magazine. Oh, look at that. Look at life. Nice. <laughs> nice. Yes, I have then. How, can we, how should we say it? I should say, yes, I have.、Um, so, one of thank our, y'all. That、uh, is super sweet. One of our gifts to our guests is to place them on the Dripping in Black. Magazine cover for that episode. So, this is episode、uh, to be determined. <laughs> okay. Keisha Lee is on the cover. Thank you. Thank you. I really love that. That's a very nice gesture. And that、uh, will be a parting gift as well. We will get that out to you、uh, in the mail at some later date. So, we want to thank you for. Stopping by the Dripping in Black podcast, and thank you for all the insight you provided today. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thanks also to Sean behind the scenes. I've really enjoyed this,、um, this time. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Dripping in Black、um, listeners. The pleasure has been all of ours. I want to remind our listeners and viewers that we have a final segment called The Last Drip that is on the way. But thanks again to Keisha Lee. Up next, the last drip. But first, a message from Anchor. A dripping in black thanks to the beautiful, beautifully intelligent, thought provoking, and fun Keisha Lee for sharing details of her life's journey to date. I found her perspective and revolutionary spirit to be both refreshing and inspiring. However, we have reached the final segment of our podcast called The Last Drip. The Last Drip is the last opportunity for us to squeeze in a bit more of Black excellence for you. In this final segment, we highlight a common thread between our guests and our vast and rich African American history. For this episode, we focus on a pioneer of culturally relevant teaching. Dr. Gloria Lassen Billings. Born in 1947, Gloria grew up in a working class household and community in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. 
In the 1960s, she would attend Morgan State University in Baltimore and earn a bachelor's degree in education in 1968. In 1972, she earned her master's degree in curriculum and instruction from the University of Washington in Seattle. After a decade of teaching in Philadelphia public schools, as well as several years in California, she sought to learn more about what prevented Black students from achieving more success in our nation's schools. She would return to school and in 1984 receive her PhD in curriculum and teacher education from Stanford University. Since the 1990s, Gloria has written extensively about culturally relevant teaching. In 1991, she joined the faculty of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. In 1994, she published her groundbreaking book, The Dreamkeepers, Successful Teachers of African-American Children. In 1995, she became the first Black woman to be a tenured professor in the University of Wisconsin-Madison's School of Education. She was a member of this faculty for more than 26 years. During her time there, she would edit 12 books, publish 49 journal articles, and 65 book chapters. She also served as an advisor for 53 doctoral students, including 21 African-American women. She officially retired in 2018. In 2017, she began her four-year term as president of the National Academy of Education. This academy supports research for the advancement of education policy and practice in the United States. Its members are a select group of education experts from around the world. Throughout her career, Dr. Gloria Lassen-Billings has won numerous scholarly awards. She is truly respected and renowned for her work. According to Google Scholar, her research linked to culturally relevant pedagogy has been cited more than 40,000 times and used by scholars all around the world. It is a subject that is near and dear to the heart and work of our guest, Keisha Lee. And in honor of her work, past and present, Dr. Gloria Lassen-Billings is this episode's last drip. For more on Dr. Gloria Lassen-Billings, check out naeducation.org, news.wisc.edu, and the74million.org. My thanks to all of these websites for the knowledge. African-American history, when offered in our public schools, is offered as an elective. It is one of the ways that our schools place institutional limits on the education that our students receive. However, no school or school system can limit you from conducting your own research. Our African-American history is vast and rich and available for those who seek it. The rest is up to you. Until next time, I challenge you to be kind, to be loving, and to be excellent on purpose. It is a choice. You have just experienced a Dripping in Black production.